The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Hello, this is Bill Coughlin. And this is Bjorn Munson. And you're listening to another Jat Chat. These are the episodes we do between our main shows to give you a behind-the-scenes, well, um, not a look. A behind-the-scenes listen. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. It's our chance to give you a bit more perspective on how we made the show, give you an idea what might happen next in that show, and answer some questions. In part, it's hard to do a commentary track for audio theater. Uh, not that I haven't thought long and hard about how we might pull that off. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, I actually thought about doing a sort of a pop-up video idea, kind of flipping the idea of an audio commentary on video to the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I realized we'd probably have to end up animating the whole show, so there'd be something to see, and, uh, well, it got a little bit too involved for our production schedule. Yeah, I, I, I really like that idea, but it's probably not practical. Uh, so in lieu of that, we bring you these... Uh, For today, we're going to talk about last week's special, The War of the Worlds, and then we'll talk about the show that's going to take us through the rest of 2018, Quorum. I cannot wait. Okay, by definition, I will wait. Funny how time works that way. Uh, So, Bjorn, why don't you go ahead and start with War of the Worlds? Thanks. Uh, So, as some of you may know, I've volunteered with the Museum of Science Fiction and their annual pop culture convention meets science expo, Escape Velocity. A little over a year ago, back in 2017, one of the staff asked about local groups that might be up for doing uh, a topical audio play that matched their, uh, their theme, say, an adaptation of Rossum's Universal Robots. So I told them about several groups that might be interested, but I also mentioned that I was working on reviving an audio troupe as well. We couldn't do anything for 2017, but hey, maybe about 2018? And they reminded me that 2018 was the 80th anniversary of Orson Welles' legendary Halloween broadcast of War of the Worlds. I think actually October 30th, but, you know, come on, people. (laughs) Uh, So I jumped at the possibility, and I said, we can do that. So we started planning last fall. We already had planned to start broadcasting from WERA in 2018. And then we got Antonio Villaronga and Hef Munson, uh, no relation, uh, longtime WERA producers to help us. And uh, then we got a cast who was a mix of new and returning voices to Jet. And then uh, we just needed a script. All right, then. So do you want to explain a bit of your process for adapting War of the Worlds? Yeah. So uh, first off, I went back and reread the novel. It's not very long, but I think I last read it as a teenager. So I'll be honest, I'd forgotten a lot of it. And although we're doing a radio play, I wanted the roots of the adaptation to be straight from the source. So, for example, uh, many of the names you heard in the version are taken directly from the novel. And uh, and then just reading it gave me an overall idea of the outline and some key moments I wanted to be sure mm-hmm. to include. Now, I did re-listen to the Orson Welles version uh, because the Mercury Theater on the air, they were no slouches at adaptations. And I believe this one, by the way, was done by uh, Howard Koch or Howard Koch. I'm not sure how you say his name. Uh, but I thought it behooved me to listen in with an ear for structure. And so, for example, it was very nice to figure out how they had divided the action into two acts. Okay, yeah. Uh, One big decision was to make it contemporary. I already knew I wanted to set it in the Washington, D.C. area since we'd be doing it as a live performance in the D.C. area. And I felt that would be an added hook to bring audiences in. 
But setting it in 2018, that gave me the opportunity to, frankly, have female characters in roles that would be anachronistic in the time of the novel, 1898. Uh, Also, a fun part of this was getting the chance to work with Carol McCaffrey in a different kind of role. Uh, Listeners may remember that Carol is the villainous Captain Sylvia Malabar in Rogue Tiger. And actually, back when we were recording seasons one and two, I thought of another villain she could play. And and she was like, you know, I can play heroes, too. So I was happy to (laughs) oblige. Uh, I was very happy. Uh, with that character. Uh, I was also happy to add uh, to my track record of playing characters who get killed off in film and television and and radio. Um, one of my unofficial official goals is to be the DC area Sean Bean. So when I realized uh, Dave, the sound engineer, needed to die in the script, I knew who had to voice him. <laughs> I think that's actually the second time a character that you play has been impaled. Yes. Yeah. The uh, The first time was in the fantasy series Broken Continents. Uh, go ahead and check that out. Uh, Francis Abbey has been very good to me in my quest for Sean Bean-style doom. Uh, so I'm just putting that out there for especially any local filmmakers. You need a character to die. Yeah, get in touch. Uh, anyway, uh, that's it. Our, our first live performance for Jabberwocky Audio Theater. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm not sure when we'll do it again, but uh, we did propose doing it again for Escape Velocity next year, so we'll see. I do have some ideas if we do. Okay, so the next thing we're going to talk about is the next show here on Jabberwocky Audio Theater. And I'm very excited because, if you recall, I mentioned that the idea is to have Jabberwocky Audio Theater be a platform for different voices and different types of stories, even if uh, there's an adventure cliffhangery bent to most of these stories. So... What I love is that Bill has created a world and a series of interconnected storylines that I, as a writer, just would not have come up with myself. And and I think listeners are really going to love it. So, Bill, why don't you start by explaining, um, without spoilers, what the quorum is? Now, do you mean uh, the series or the group itself? Uh, <laughs> uh, whichever you want, though I think you might want to start by explaining what you mean by uh, by making that distinction. Okay. Well, the overall series, Quorum, is named for the connecting thread throughout the show, which is a group, a kind of a super-secret, sinister organization that works behind the scenes to manipulate world events according to their whims. It's a kind of fever dream that keeps conspiracy theorists up at night, Uh, the idea that there's a secret cabal of real power brokers who are ultimately in control of everything. Uh, And I think that speaks to something primal in us, the part of us that wants to imagine that everything that happens is due to the machinations of someone who's really in charge, even if those in charge have a sinister agenda. I don't know if you remember that line from The Dark Knight where the Joker says, nobody freaks out when things go according to plan, even if the plan is horrible. <laughs> yes, of course. And, and I deal with bureaucrats. So, so yes, absolutely. <laughs> go, right. So uh, that overall idea fascinates me, uh, that people take comfort in order, even if that order is ultimately harmful. Uh, Now, there are obviously groups in the real world that manipulate events in certain spheres, uh, your various coalitions, interest groups, and the like. Uh, But the idea that any group of people could manipulate events enough to overcome the forces of random chance falls apart on close scrutiny, uh, chaos theory and all that. Mm -hmm. But uh, while I'm certainly not above positing such a group for dramatic purposes, I did want to come up with a more plausible explanation as to how they could actually do so. Uh, Okay, so I I said no spoilers. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, right. Uh, Let's just say that much more will be revealed about the quorum over time. Uh, Initially, we see them, or hear them since this is audio drama, Uh, but we'll learn more about their motives and methods only in time. Okay, and in previous episodes, I went into some of my reasons for deciding how to tell the story of Rogue Tiger. Can you talk a little about how you decided to tell 
this kind of story and, and what some of your influences were? Well, I'll start with the larger idea, Quorum, as an overarching series. Uh, I've always had a fascination with both conspiracy theories and the often unseen consequences of minor events. Uh, I don't know if you've read the Illuminatus trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson, uh, but I was first introduced to that world through the card game Illuminati from uh, Steve Jackson Games. So I, I haven't read the books, but I have actually played the game, and I'm fond of both the Gnomes of Zurich and the OG Bavarian Illuminati. <laughs> right. So uh, the basic conceit of the game is that each player takes on the role of some great sinister conspiracy, and the goal of the game is to essentially secretly take over the world. Uh, it's great satire and a whole lot of fun. And then when I read the novel, I saw where that all sprang from, although the game does take influence from other places as well, including a bit of Lovecraft and a really fascinating series of art books called Schwab, featuring simple alien imagery. Uh, but, but essentially, it boils down to the question, what if every whacked-out conspiracy theory you ever heard was true, and true at the same time? <laughs> it's bizarre, but someone out there is sure of this. <laughs> Most definitely. Then on the other side, you have, say, Spectre in the James Bond films, uh, where it's played straight, a sinister organization pitting the Cold War powers against each other and coming in after they've damaged each other. Unfortunately, that whole storyline was cut short in the aftermath of the legal battle between Kevin McClory and Eon Productions over James Bond, uh, which is why the organization just disappeared after Diamonds Are Forever. We will not speak of the abomination that was the recent Spectre movie. Uh, uh, okay, understood. Anyway, uh, one advantage of serialized storytelling is that I can gradually introduce elements to inform the larger whole. I don't have to throw everything into the mix all at once, which might end up with listeners getting lost. I can spend time telling very different stories, but ones that'll slowly provide insight into the bigger drama. So in essence, we have the quorum kind of bookending each season, but the individual stories can be enjoyed in and of themselves. All right. Uh, so I think we can go more into all the changes into the script and the evolution of the characters in the chat chat that wraps up the season. Uh, but can you give us a bit more about this particular season and The Gambler's Tale? Right. So the inaugural arc I'm introducing with The Gambler's Tale is focused on the world of professional poker. Uh, this came out of a really bizarre series of events. Uh, bear with me a bit, and I'll try to keep it brief. That, that's not either of our strong suits. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but to quote Al Capone in The Untouchables, we laugh because it's funny, and we laugh because it's true. Anyway, uh, a number of years back, my friend uh, Adam Young, who you know, Bjorn, mm -hmm. uh, suggested that we start a little poker game, uh, low stakes just for fun. Really just an excuse to get some of our friends together every once in a while. And obsessive that I am, I went a little overboard. I went out and picked up some cheap poker chips and thought... Hey, wouldn't it be neat if we had our own custom poker chips? And being a designer, I came up with a pretty cool initial design. Actually incorporated an eye in the pyramid motif to bring it back to that Illuminati idea. Hmm. Now, that didn't really work with the cheaper chips I'd picked up at the local store. Turned out the small center circles on the chips weren't really big enough to showcase that elaborate design. So I got some slightly more expensive chips, composite chips, kind of a plastic and clay combination with a metal slug for weight that were better suited to custom labels. But in the course of my research, I learned more about the high-end clay chips that the casinos used. Uh, but there really wasn't any way I could afford those, at least not in large enough quantities to host a game. Yeah, I suppose you would need more than just a few chips. Right. But as it happens, during my investigations, I came across a custom chip maker that at that exact moment was looking to launch a new design and was sponsoring a contest to do so uh, through one of the prominent poker chip aficionado websites. So pretty much on a whim, I modified my design and entered the competition and one. Huh. Uh, so my design became the protege line of poker chips, uh, and I got a full set as well as a really nice mahogany case to keep them in. I got invited to tournaments where people were actually using my chips. 
I couldn't believe it. Uh, and we went on to expand the set with both higher and lower denominations. It's actually a really robust line now, a bit of a collector's item. <laughs> That's pretty cool all around. <laughs> yeah. So that was really how I first got into poker. I was never really a great player, but I enjoyed the game. And then one day, while I was traveling for business, I ended up watching ESPN on the flight, and they were running the 2005 World Series of Poker. Uh, that's the big international tournament for poker players. Uh, been going on since uh, 1970, and notable for being open to professionals and amateurs alike, so long as you can come up with the initial $10,000 buy-in. If you've seen the movie Rounders, it features fairly prominently as a sort of MacGuffin. Yeah, I, I've seen it. I, I forgot about that bit. But yeah, Matt Damon, Edward Norton, I think, uh, isn't Malkovich in yeah, there too? Yeah, Malkovich is in there, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny. Uh, the tournament was entertaining to watch from the standpoint of the game itself. But even more so, it became clear that this was a world of colorful characters and behind-the-scenes drama. It was like a soap opera at times. I don't know that I really knew I had a story to be told in that world, at least not yet, but I was intrigued by the veneer they put over everything. The image that, if you scraped it a bit, would reveal that the reality wasn't even close to what you were seeing. Kind of like scraping the enamel off the Maltese Falcon to reveal the composition underneath. Uh, careful, careful, <laughs> you're getting ahead of me now. <laughs> okay, sorry. Go on. Okay, uh, just to give you one example, and we make reference to this in the series, when they talk about these big professional poker players, they always talk about their career winnings, these big numbers that make these guys, and they're almost always guys, which is something else we'll touch on, remarkable. Uh, but they conveniently omit losses. And once you take those into account, most of these players, even the big name ones, are barely breaking even. So basically not a great financial plan to go ahead and quit your day job. Uh, not unless that's really what you want to do and you're not in it for the money. But I guess that's kind of counter to the whole spirit of poker. Mm -hmm. If you're really good, you can make a living, but you're really not going to get rich playing. Uh, then again, every once in a while, a game changer, uh, no pun intended, okay. uh, comes into play. Uh, in this case, a couple of them. One in 2004, a guy named, I kid you not, Chris Moneymaker, <laughs> won the World Series of Poker. And he was not a professional player, but just a regular guy, an amateur. And that made for a whole new narrative. Suddenly, amateur players started flooding into Vegas to play poker, everyone thinking they could win the big title, which was technically true. But in reality, that meant a whole lot more money for the pros to take advantage of. So basically, Las Vegas was hosting Shark Week every week and inviting all the minnows. Pretty much. Uh, and that, in turn, led to a lot of other opportunities. A wider audience meant advertising revenue, sponsorships, and so on. Uh, the series had been televised since the 70s, but usually in repeats uh, and, and shortened for, for time. But starting in the 2000s, it really took off. There were poker TV shows everywhere, not just the World Series, but cash games, tip shows, you name it. Big time. And you mentioned other big changes, right? Yeah. The second big game changer was the advent of online poker. Now, gambling is mostly illegal in the U.S., but these sites operated offshore, which meant they weren't subject to American anti-gambling laws. Suddenly, people didn't have to go to Vegas or Atlantic City, what have you, to play poker for real money. They could do it at home over the Internet. But this introduced a whole new kind of player, one who wasn't focused on reading people, since you can't do that online, mm -hmm. but on reading patterns. And then the big real-world tournaments started offering seats to online winners. It completely transformed the way the game is played, even in the live setting. It became a massive boon to the industry, but was something the old-school live players had to learn to adjust to. Until, uh, well, I'll wait to say anything more. Uh, Suffice it to say that even before I had a specific story to tell, I had a backdrop to set it against. Yeah, but eventually uh, you did have a story to tell. Indeed I did. 
to put it bluntly, I love hard-boiled crime. Uh, mostly classic films noir like the aforementioned Maltese Falcon mm -hmm. and everything that's come out of that style since, the whole neo-noir subgenre. Everything from genre-bending crossovers like Blade Runner to uh, modern interpretations like The Usual Suspects or Memento. And given that Las Vegas has more than a little history with organized crime, it seemed like a natural fit. Uh, Vegas pretends like it's cleaned up its act, but again, sticking with the notion of a greater truth lying beneath the surface, there's a hidden reality that most people don't see, or at least not fully. So taking the elements of the classic noir films and hard-boiled crime fiction, uh, the flawed protagonist with a bit of nefarious history, the larger forces and character flaws that keep that character from moving forward, and ultimately, a single-minded determination to root out the truth no matter the cost. Yeah, so, yeah, sounds like you had a lot to work with there. Yeah, I definitely did. And audio drama really seemed like a fantastic medium in which to tackle it. I actually have three different audio drama adaptations of The Maltese Falcon. Uh, the Lux Radio and Screen Guild Theater broadcasts from 1943 and the Academy Award Theater broadcasts from 1946. Uh, some of those feature members of the movie cast, but my favorite is actually the original Lux Theater one with uh, Edward G. Robinson as Sam Spade. And on top of that, there's a whole new world of hard-boiled crime podcasts out there right now. Uh, crime author Seth Harwood, who writes the Jack Palm series, does serialized readings of his novels, and he puts those out as he's writing them, very old school. And he sponsors the whole Crime Wave podcast series, and that's Wave as in W-A-V, like the audio file format. I see what they did there. So I knew there was a market out there for this. So as all good authors do, I started researching. Uh, unearthed a whole lot about the often underreported influence of, say, the Polish mob in Las Vegas, uh, the inner workings of the city. But ultimately, I wanted to use that information to support my story. I wasn't beholden to reality, uh, though we do touch on some real-world historical events, so much as I wanted to make sure my story felt real. Uh, real poker players will, no doubt, find a ton of flaws in the details that I put forward, but I felt free to alter reality, as storytellers have done for generations, to suit the story I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. So you wanted a story to feel plausible, if not entirely realistic. Exactly. Uh, the other great thing about the audio drama format, as you discovered with Rogue Tiger, is that we're not limited by the constraints of an indie production budget. So we can introduce exotic locations, big set pieces, car chases, shootouts, you name it. And we have all of those and more in Quorum. <laughs> cool, indeed we do. Well, again... I am so excited for all of you to hear this production. Uh, this was the first one where we did the recording at the uh, AIM WERA facilities, and, and they were great. Uh, we have several company members coming back that you've heard before, but we have so many new voices uh, I think you're going to love. Exactly. Cameron McNary joins our troupe as protagonist Jimmy Harmon, a down-on-his-luck online poker player who finds himself having to venture more explicitly into the world of live play thanks to an ill-advised decision on his part, the same ill-advised decision that has left him in debt to the wrong people, notably uh, Polish gangster Victoria Salkiewicz, played by another newcomer to our troupe, Lydia Kraniotis. Uh, Jimmy is helped out by his friend Will Archer, played by James E. Lewis, who's now working at a casino, and another poker player, Peeps, played by returning cast member Yasmin Toison, who plays Shen Enling in Rogue Tiger and mm -hmm. played uh, weather reporter Lisa Howes in uh, War of the Worlds. And then there's Big Mike Dalton, played by Joel Snyder, who sort of stands in for the classic world of professional poker, the old pros club, so to speak. And Nick DePinto, uh, Aiden from Rogue Tiger, comes in as Las Vegas police detective Ben Marshall, who pressures our protagonist, Jimmy, 
to help unearth the seedy underbelly of the Las Vegas criminal element. And really, that's just scratching the surface. Yeah, it, it really is a fascinating array of characters. It's, it's very epic at points. It really is. It was definitely a lot of fun to write. Uh, but uh, it's very different from what you did with Rogue Tiger, where you had a whole ensemble of characters to bounce off of each other on a regular basis. Here, we really are focusing on a central single figure, the gambler in question in The Gambler's Tale. Uh, but I ended up with a whole array of characters that cross his path. Uh, to say nothing of the members of the quorum group that we spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. Really an enormous cast, at least by our standards, right. and a real challenge to make them all distinct, to have their own voice. And those characters really evolved over subsequent iterations of the script. Yeah, I recall several changes that took place uh, after a table read we did uh, a few months back. Right. Uh, yeah, there were some big changes that took place after that. Uh, hearing actors read the script out loud, even though I don't think any of them wound up playing the same characters in the final show. Uh, but that just gives you an amazing insight into areas where there's still work to do. Uh, as a writer, every once in a while, you sort of uh, paper over something, uh, crossing your fingers that something you really know is flawed will actually work and nobody will notice the problems. Uh, but once you hear it out loud, you realize that you've really got to go in and do the work to make it right, not just passable. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. There's really no way to avoid doing the hard work. <laughs> no, there really isn't. Uh, but honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, one of the characters who changed the most was uh, Peeps, Jimmy's poker player associate. I know we'll talk more about this after the show airs, but the character was originally named Weasel, which was a bit on the nose, and was actually a male character, and just in the story very briefly. Mm -hmm. But in doing my research, even after I'd finished the first few drafts, I became fascinated with the discrimination, both subtle and explicit, that female poker players run up against in a heavily male-dominated field. And that opened up a whole new raft of possibilities and made for a much more compelling character, Compelling enough that I actually brought the character back in later episodes, essentially making what you might think of as the second act of the season uh, a two-hander between Jimmy and Peeps. And after that table read, uh, where my wife Pam actually read the part, I was able to develop a much more elaborate backstory and motivation for the character and a name change in the process. Yeah, no, that I, I'm really hoping uh, that that sounds like it's been a lot of evolution. I hope we get more into this in postseason. Exactly. Two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but wow, an evolution. Yeah, it really has been. Uh, the first version of the script, what, what I thought at the time was pretty much complete, came in at about 92 pages. Uh, the final script clocks in at more like 220 pages, <laughs> uh, which comes out to about 22 pages per episode. Uh, just like a Rogue Tiger was the longest piece you'd written up until then, this was the same for me. And, and this is just the first story arc within The Gambler's Tale. It's a little awkward, but we've got kind of a three-tiered titling system. The overall series is called Quorum. This story, Jimmy's story, is called The Gambler's Tale, and this first arc, the first season, if you will, is called Outstanding Debts. It's a bit of a mouthful, but hopefully it suggests what I've been trying to convey, that for every story we tell, there are larger narratives into which those stories fit, ultimately fitting into the larger Quorum storyline. So are all the stories within the Quorum world going to be these sprawling multi-season arcs? Uh, no, no, definitely not. Uh, in fact, I actually have another Quorum story on deck that will be a single episode tale. One that we're hoping to tell is a kind of interlude between seasons before launching into the next chapter of Jimmy's story. Uh, but more on that later, one step at a time. All right. And I suspect we're bumping up against uh, more information that might spoil the fun. So I think at this point, it's probably best to wrap up. So uh, once again, this is Bjorn Munson thanking you for listening. And this is Bill Coughlin. And we invite you to join us next week for Quorum, The Gambler's Tale, Outstanding Debts.
hast thou slain the Jabberwock? 